Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about community Bible reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. Hey, New City, this is Nate Claiborne. I'm here today with Josh Kessler, and we're going to be talking about the book of Esther. Good to be with you, Josh. You too again, Nate. Yeah. yeah, this has been fun going through all the historical books together. Yeah, we're just knocking them out one right after the other. <laughs> That's it. Well, so we, in some sense, Esther is picking up where Nehemiah left off. In another sense, it's mm-hmm. not. Um, in our English Bibles, they're all grouped together because they're kind of the end of the historical books before we turn into the poetry books. Um but as we're looking at Esther, it's taking place in a different place than we left off. Can you fill us in on some of this, some of the background context that we need to make sense of where we're, what we're reading? Yeah. So when the the exiles were taken uh, originally from Jerusalem and from Israel, uh, the Babylonian Empire was in charge at that time, and so mm-hmm. we've had a little bit of a switchover. Um, the Persians are now um, in charge, and we find ourselves about 100 years or so after the exile. Um, that's when the story of Esther takes place. And so we're in the capital city of the Persian Empire, which is Susa mm-hmm. at the time. And um, so the, the, it's probably important to note here, too, that we've mentioned in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the one way this, this connects is that uh, there were some exiles who returned, but there were also some exiles who were still stuck in um, in exile in yeah. the Persian Empire. So it's not like even when the, the exiles came back in, in sort of spurts and segments that all of the exiles eventually returned. That's not true. There were some exiles that were still um in the Persian Empire at the time. Yeah, it so. may, maybe raises some important questions for how we understand the person of Esther and Mordecai. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we have enough details in the text to know for sure whether or not they had an option to return and just yeah. opted to stay with... They've basically grown up in Persia. True. So mm-hmm. it, is this just more comfortable? There's a, I've read in some places, and I can't think of where they are right offhand, but it talks about... Um, in some sense, these are Jewish people who are sort of on the fringe of the Jewish religion in the sense that if they were really pious, faithful Jewish believers, as soon as there was an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and be part of the rebuilding and be mm-hmm. there at the temple, you would want to jump on that chance mm-hmm. rather than just stay behind in this pagan empire. Yeah. But we're kind of we're kind of guessing a little bit there because the text doesn't really tell us. So it's it just doesn't. worth noting. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And um, to get into a, a little bit more background as well, we don't actually know who wrote the book of Esther. Mm. That person is anonymous. Um, and that kind of leads us into one of maybe the difficult things about the book of Esther in, in the canonization of Esther in the first place, in that it's God is never explicitly mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. And so it's been one of, if not the most debated um, books in the Old Testament canon that that was canonized um, for that reason. Yeah, we we could think of uh, Luther as a good kind of 
person to check with on this and he Mm -hmm. was okay with it being part of the canon, but wasn't totally thrilled about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And yeah, that that is probably if we say what's the one of the most obviously difficult things with a book like Esther, it's that God's not mentioned at any point. It talks about prayer, Mm -hmm. but we don't, unlike Nehemiah, we don't have actual prayers to go on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's maybe telling at least that they talk about prayer, but they don't say pray to the God of heaven and earth or pray to Yahweh or pray. It just says, you know, or even the phrase, the name of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, totally absent. So on the one hand, we might say, well, then how did this book even end up in the Bible? Um, But we'll come back to some threads that we can see that would suggest it's continuing a story that we're familiar with. And if we're a little patient and and kind of think about some of the names in here, it would help us see the connections, but we'll just kind of note this on the front end that it is a difficulty in the book that God's not mentioned. I believe it's the only book in the old Testament, probably the Bible as a whole, I would say that it does not mention God in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Don't quote me on that either, but I'm pretty sure that that's, that's, that's accurate. (laughs) Yeah, so we've got a book that takes place sometime in the Persian Empire. It's mm-hmm. got some Jewish uh, Jewish people who have chosen to stay in Persia for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and the book doesn't mention anything about God. So yeah, you know, it, it, <laughs> just so we're just so we're clear on what we've just so where we covered so <laughs> far, where we're starting. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about Esther though as a story, and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll we'll circle back to some of the theological things later, but just. As a piece of literature, what are some of the key themes or just mm-hmm. sort of ways that'll help us understand as we read through this over the next week and a half or so? Yeah, it's it's a really interest. It's a very interesting book in that it um, it's probably one of the more engaging. Um, not that the historical narrative books haven't been engaging, but um, that it's probably one of the most engaging historical narrative books because of the way that the story is told. And I think because of the way that the story is structured too. So, um, the, but the big themes would be God's providence, um, in the seemingly, uh, ordinary coincidences and events of, of life that just seem to come together in this very strange way. Yes. So it's, you know, that there's something or someone behind all of this, mm-hmm. just the way that the story is laid out. Um, there's too many coincidences, and uh, and there's so much reversal that happens in this book and in this story, uh, so much so that it becomes very obvious uh, that God is is um, behind all of the things that are happening in the book. Yeah, so. and then that's probably why, as we were talking just a minute ago, we, we didn't say God is absent in the book of Esther, right. just that God's not mentioned. Right. But as we're reading through some of these reversals, so we, we've got the theme of uh, God's providence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got these uh, redemptive reversals or ironic reversals. Um, what Very are ironic. what are a couple of those that we can we can highlight real quick? Yeah. So um, I think uh, the the big ones would be um, we, we think about the beginning of the story, and we're thinking about where the exiles are and uh, the the. Esther and and Haman, how he gets introduced to the story, um, really in chapter, he's kind of the villain of the whole story. Is um, mm. and so when he comes on the scene, uh, he has he's very much has this uh, pompous, prideful, like, "Hey, I'm number two. Um, 
the the king issues a decree that everyone's to bow down to Haman and and uh, Mordecai, who is uh, it seems to be a pretty devout Jew actually to the mm-hmm. point earlier, yeah, um, refuses to bow down, and so um, uh, Haman is like enraged over that, and so he um, seeks to not only end Mordecai's life but really get rid of all of the Jews in general, and so the the big reversal of the entire story is that. At the end of the book, we actually see that it's Haman who dies, and mm-hmm. his ten—did he have ten sons? His his family, and so it's kind of the so, end of his bloodline. Yeah, it's the end of, of his bloodline, really. So, uh, what he seeks to accomplish actually ends up getting turned back on his head. Mm-hmm. We think about some of the the language of the Psalms there as well. Yeah, well, and even, um, and an even more deeply ironic twist, he ends up being hung on the gallows that he that created he made for Mordecai. Right. Um, there's one of my favorite scenes in the book is when he comes in this is after he's mad at Mordecai and he's gotten this decree issued, but it hasn't gone into effect yet. Mm-hmm. And then he comes in to talk to the king and he asks the king, what should, uh, or the king asks Haman as he comes in, what should the king do to honor someone important to him? And he's thinking, Haman just oh, assumes he's talking about me. <laughs> and then he, yeah. he tells him what he would want. And then at the end right. of it, the king's like, okay, well go grab Mordecai and why don't you go do that for him? It's just do this that, kind man. of deep Don't leave anything out, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you said, go do that. Yes. Um, that's so fantastic. We've got that kind of mini, that's almost like a foreshadowing of Mordecai is really going to take the place that Haman wants in the best sense. Yeah. And Haman's going to take the place of Mordecai in the worst sense in that he's the one who gets hung. Haman, or Mordecai is the one who gets promoted and honored. and Along uh, with all the Jews, really. Yeah. Um, and so I think to, to that point, the story you just mentioned is probably the great pivot the great turn the great turning point of the entire book um yeah I'm, i wish i had i'm looking at the chapters i think the story i mentioned is in is it in six or is I it believe in, it's in six it starts at it comes together in yeah it's in six six is mm-hmm. the kind of the central part of the whole story uh, we were talking earlier before we got on here about uh chiasms and how mm-hmm. certain books are structured um, tell us about what's going on here with Esther. Since we're talking about chapter six is the central point. How can we kind of see that that's our... It really is. Yeah. And, and I think uh, this is this is helpful <clears throat> in terms of seeing the structure of the book and then uh, seeing really how brilliantly put together this book is as a story and as, um, as, as a book in the Bible. Uh, it's just brilliant. So um, the chiastic structure or the chiasm... Um, as we understand it, uh, if if I were to give you the uh, the high point of the story, let's say let's call that C, okay. And mm-hmm. so the maybe the beginning of the story uh, would be A, and then the next part of the story would be B, and then I'm building to this high point to to letter C, uh-huh. and then everything falling away from the high point mirrors the first two points in the story that I was building up to in the high point. Mm -hmm. So then after C, I would have B1, and then after that, I would have A1. So that you have this perfect parallelism going on in the story, um, and and it's just brilliant the way that's structured. Do you want to point out a couple of those parallels for everyone? Maybe for for some of the more visual people um, we could throw in there. Think of uh, a chiasm comes from uh, the Greek letter key, 
or chi, depending on who, if it's you're talking about a sorority or fraternity or someone <laughs> who knows Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's the letter X. And so if we can kind of picture picture a giant capital X in your mind. And then mm-hmm. at the top left, there's an A. And then as Josh was saying, about halfway down, there's a B. And then right at the center of the X, that's where your C point is. Mm-hmm. Then a B1 and then an A1 at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're saying this this story in chapter six where uh, the king can't sleep and he wants to honor someone. And that's kind of this turning point in this story. But yeah, that's sort of our letter C is our letter C. And we Mm -hmm. could fill in some of the other letters, but maybe we could say at at the very beginning of the story, there's honor for King Xerxes. And then at the end of the story, there's honor for Mordecai Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the story, kind of after the honor, there's these banquets that, take place and then there's banquets again at the end there's actually banquet that's a sub theme we could maybe we could talk about but Mm -hmm. uh this banquet theme that runs throughout the book of esther there's always banquets going on or people getting together for power lunches and you know just kind of working out working out their business (laughs) over over food and drink yeah um but this chapter six is kind of the central incident um that has mirrored stories on either side of it. It's right. very well put together literarily. And yes. uh, you were mentioning earlier that, it, uh, well, I say this as a caveat, uh, some people over, uh, overemphasize or over exaggerate chiasms in the Bible. They're just mm-hmm. anywhere you can see vague parallels. Sure. You want to find them, but as a literary structuring device, it's very clear the Bible has a lot of them. And even we could say, totally. uh, you mentioned the Pentateuch as a yeah. example, the five books of Moses could yeah. be looked at that way. Yeah, the Pentateuch is a is a, a great example of, of a chiasm in that everything really builds to the middle of Leviticus mm. and the Day of Atonement yeah. and then falls away from that um, in a parallel fashion. And uh, so if you were to... Google a uh, the the chiasm of the Pentateuch. You could see that pretty neatly, and it's really really cool to see that unfold. Yeah, um, the way that it does. So, when we kind of have that in in the Old Testament as a whole, at least in the Hebrew structuring, because we've got story at the beginning, commentary on the story that really makes the most sense of it through the prophets and the Psalms right. and wisdom literature, and then we have the story again at the end. Uh, but we also have that same structure in the New Testament. It starts off with stories, the story of Jesus, life, death, resurrection. And then we have commentary on that story that helps make sense of it through the epistles. And then the story picks back up at the end. So we, we still have that same kind of parallel. And it's maybe a more simple version of it. But once you kind of know what to look for, biblical commentaries are really good at pointing these things out to us. And it just kind of helps the story stick in your mind a little better. Yeah, it does. It, it, it really helps you see sort of the the real thread and the point, really, of the entire story and the, and the thing that we're building to and how how much that's highlighted by the structure of a, of a, of a chiasm. Yeah. So. so we've got kind of we covered a lot of ground so far. Just mm-hmm. to recap a little bit, we got our cultural background. We've got our sort of literary structuring. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about some just things going on that are worth taking note of as we're reading through the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's drill in a little bit deeper with a couple more things. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about divine providence. We've talked about God's hiddenness maybe, but not absence. Um, So we want to get into that. But before we leave the literary realm, Mm -hmm. um, we should probably just take some time to note that it's okay to laugh 
<laughs> while you're <laughs> yes. reading the book of Esther. And yeah. um, I saw a great yeah. quote earlier that um, in some ways, uh, this was, a, I think it was H.L. Minken uh, who said this, who was not a friend of Christianity, but uh, said, um, God is like a comedian performing in front of an audience who's afraid to laugh. And as we're reading Esther, we're like, oh, it's in the Bible. It's somber. It's high stakes. The Jews might get eradicated. And so we just kind of skip over some of the things that are really meant to be funny. Like there's a comedic element to the story as a whole. But then there's um, even just in the in the chapter, we're just talking about chapter six. So it starts off chapter six, verse one. That night sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. And then this, that's how they find the report of Mordecai and realize they've never rewarded him. But just, just think of the humor of the king can't get to sleep. So he has a record of his reign read to him in the middle of the night to put him back to sleep. Like, <laughs> Hey, tell me a little bit about myself. Yeah. I, I saw, I saw someone <laughs> characterizing it as it would, be, it would be like if uh, Damien couldn't sleep one night. So he downloads the podcasts of the sermons from the previous weeks. And he's like, I'll just listen to some of my old sermons. That'll, that'll put voice. me right back out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's like, you've got things like that. You've got, um, in the beginning when King Xerxes is, uh, upstaged by Queen Vashti, his solution to being disrespected by his wife is to make a decree that all women everywhere in his kingdom will honor their husbands. And you're just like, everyone knows if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, that the woman is the neck and the neck turns the head however she wants. Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And some, he doesn't know that wisdom somehow. (laughs) It's like, that's, that's kind of funny. And then there's, there's just the whole, just the way things turn on Haman. It's, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's tragic, but it's also f- funny. Like the, there's the, the scene in chapter seven where he's trying to beg for his life from queen Esther, but he like falls on her. And then yeah. right as he falls on her is the when King Xerxes comes back, back in. in and it looks like he's trying to make an advance on her. Yeah. So it makes him even more angry. <laughs> it's just wrong yeah. place, wrong time. wrong time. It's just, it's like the stuff of, of sitcoms mm-hmm. and it's in the Bible. And it's there because it's good storytelling. It is. And it is. it's okay to find it humorous. It's It, it can mm-hmm. be serious and funny at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should be able to laugh at, at good storytelling when it's when it's trying to get us to do that. Yeah. So, so uh, with the funny note out of the way, let's, <laughs> let's kind of, let's land the plane a little bit on mm. the serious note of how, how this uh, story where God's not mentioned, but yet is providentially active can kind of connect to us today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll circle back to some threads that we see in a minute, but how, how do we see it connecting to us today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're in the time period where um, obviously we, we have all of revelation, we have everything that's been canonized. So, um, I mean, there's a whole other debate on whether you're cessationist or non-cessationist, and that that's that's another podcast entirely. But um, to say that God still performs miracles is true, but to say that He shows up in the way that He did in miraculous ways, specifically in the Bible, um, doesn't really happen to us anymore. Mm-hmm. So we we very much live in a, a time and place in redemptive history where. Um, 
God works the way that he does in the book of Esther, which seems to be behind the scenes in all of the really minute details and specific details, crazy coincidences Mm -hmm. that just continue to happen day after day after day. Um, But even, even miraculous things that take place, um, you know, someone's health all of like just all of a sudden reverses and recovers and the doctors have no explanation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things happen all the time every day. And so I think the book of Esther, we can really identify with the way that God works in the book of Esther a lot because he isn't explicitly mentioned, but he's always there. Mm -hmm. He's there in every detail. He's there in every part of the story, working to reverse the fortunes of Mordecai and of the Jews and of God's people in general, and then uh, really moving toward the message of of the book and uh, and the the thing that really points back to us today and to say that when we look around at everything that's happening, like we're – we can identify with the idea of being in exile because sin is still rampant in the world and, and it, it ravages things every day, including uh, our, our lives, our relationships. Um, and yet God is at work and God has promised that he will end all of these things one day. Mm-hmm. So the Israelites at that time may be asking the question, okay, in, where's God in like all of this and all of like in this place that we find ourselves in the Persian Empire like what about his promises what about you know uh, the the things that he uh, did in the past that he doesn't seem to be doing anymore um, and we're, we're we're looking at all of that and wondering like where is God in this and then you get the story of Esther that's answering the question is God? anywhere to be found in this? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Like he is everywhere to be found in it and all of the tiny details, every part of the story. Yeah. Um, and I think that really speaks to us as well, that we can know that in every ordinary event, in every day that we find ourselves working, toiling, um, striving and, and, uh, confronted with with sin and difficulty that God is in the midst of every single detail and for his people he's working all those details out for their good and yeah. we see that at the end of Esther not only does do the fortunes of of Mordecai and uh, get reversed but the entire Jewish people and so the answer is yes God is with us yes God is working in in all of these details and he will fulfill his promises yeah. So I wish there was a way that uh, as for most of our listeners and for us as well, that we could go back and read Esther for the first time, mm. because it, it, there's a sense in which we it's hard to really resonate with the, the maybe the abandonment that the Jewish people would be feeling when they find mm. out about this edict from King Xerxes because Haman was upset at Mordecai like. You know, it happens really quickly as we're reading through the story, and we know how it ends. So yeah. it's like, oh, no, this is just the way God's working out the details. But in the moment, it's like, well, this seems like a mess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't know if we could we could try to put ourselves in their, in their place, imagine, you know, what it would be like for, I don't know, for everybody in Orlando to be suddenly shipped out somewhere mm-hmm. and, and moved away and then told... Hey, um, because you're, I don't, uh, 
because you all, all have this X problem, this particular problem. Because you're have, all Florida men and women. Because you're all Florida men and women. <laughs> you have to be executed, annihilated. And what what kind of distress that would cause for us all of a sudden to be like, you know, what just happened? Like, uh, we're all going to die. Like, mm-hmm. like in, in a few months, like, we're all going to die. Yeah. And what what dis- kind of distress that would cause us if we've just heard that news all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 Cause as, as we're reading the story, it's like, well, we know who Esther is. We right. know that she's a Jewish orphan who's now the queen of the largest empire in the world. But the average Jewish person in the empire doesn't know that their queen Esther, cause that's not even her, her Jewish name is Hadassah. Esther is her Persian given name as the queen. So as far as they're concerned, she's just some Persian girl that King Xerxes found the most attractive and decided to make queen. So they have Mm -hmm. no idea that she's been placed in that place for that specific reason, because God's working behind the scenes to pull all these things together. It just, one of the, uh, I can't remember who I stole this example from, which I guess makes it mine now because it's, (laughs) I can pretend it's original, but, um, (laughs) I'm not a big cross stitcher, but I know what a cross stitch is. And mm-hmm. um, if you've ever flipped a cross stitch around and looked at it from the back, it just like looks like a whole bunch of strings just sticking around. You know, doesn't look like anything at all. And I think yeah. someone used this as an analogy of God's providence in that you, as you're experiencing it, it's like looking at a cross stitch from the back. You just see the threads start poking through here, poking through there, poking through, and mm-hmm. it just still looks like a mess. But then once you're on the other side of God's working, it's like it's flipped around and you see, Oh, it was making this picture. Mm. And in the moment it just looked like a bunch of tangled threads. Oh, and how often do we feel like that? Yeah. I mean, when, when we, when we get to that thread, that's really difficult. Um, or we realize it's, you know, to, continue with the analogy we realize it's a mess and we actually have to redo that one thing that we uh-huh. that we that we ended up uh, messing up and we get to those points and how frustrated and or how alone or how difficult things can feel in those places but when we if we were to, if you were to stop right now and look back at key moments in your life or really important things that took place and um, you would be able to see God's working over all of that and you see this beautiful picture that he's painting yeah even in your own life yeah so i think esther is just a a great reminder of i mean in some sense it's one of the more applicable and we don't Mm. want to judge applicability in old testament books but it's the one that's maps onto our experience the most readily of there's the highs there's the lows but if we look at our lives we look at the story of esther through the eyes of faith we're able Mm -hmm. to see God's working on something and we don't know what the Mm. picture is yet. But if part of being a believer is choosing to have faith that God's at work Mm -hmm. rather than questioning. And I would not to say that we can't question and doubt and have our wonders, but it's, it is a, it's a posture of faith to Mm. look at whatever mess there is in front of us and say, well, God's at work in this somehow. And I'm going to keep looking for the threads to see, when the picture will emerge and just trusting that God's going to flip it around at some point. And there's going to be that, my own redemptive reversal, much like Esther's. Mm. Speaking of Esther, Esther, how did, so, uh, she's a very unique character. How do we see her in this whole thing? Yeah. So maybe let's, let's kind of tie the, 
speaking of threads, we'll, we'll tie all the little threads together. So Esther, um, if we think about it, Esther is in some sense like Moses. And in another, so looking back, she's like Moses. Looking forward, she's also like Jesus. Mm. And she's the, because she is the last great mediator in the Old Testament story. So Moses was a mediator in that he represented God's interest to the people. You know, comes down off the mountain, here's what God said. But then he also represents the people back up to God. So he's Mm -hmm. between the two parties, helping reconcile them together, being their covenant mediator. And it sets up this role that then Esther is able to fill because as a Jewish peasant girl, she's able to rec- she's able to represent the interests of the Jewish people to the emperor, mm-hmm. uh, which he otherwise could probably care less about whether the Jewish people die or not. But if his totally. queen says, oh, these are my people, you have to help preserve us. Now he's going to listen. Mm-hmm. But then she's also able to represent royalty to the Jewish people as well. So she's, she's kind of standing in both roles. And that sets us up for the way we understand Jesus is fully human representing all of our human interests to God, but also mm. fully God able to represent God most fully to us as humans being. Mm-hmm. And so he's the final, final mediator is Esther's kind yeah. of the last one in the old Testament. Yeah. That we see. And I think a specific instance to point out in this story too, would be um, the, the way that she m- mirrors Jesus and her willingness to, to give her life mm-hmm. to say, um, I, I will. I will. I'll go before the king, even though it's against the law. Yeah. And if I die, I die. But I'm willing to do that. Mm-hmm. So. And she didn't have to because she could have just totally just she could have not said quiet. anything about being Jewish and yeah, spared her queen own life and 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 lived uh, luxurious days. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the, I mean, if we want to extend your what you're saying there further, it's there's a condescension on her part of choosing to sort of put herself in the place of her people when she mm. could have just stayed in the palace and watched everything unfold and just been totally untouched by it. So she, you know, she has an ascent in some sense of mm-hmm. becoming, or, you know, rags to riches, orphan to queen. Um, but then she's able to put herself in their place, intercede on their behalf. And so it just sets up this model that or it continues mm. this model really that goes all the way back to the Pentateuch. Yeah. Um, and as mentioned earlier, we should probably just, we could maybe close with this is that, um, while we might question whether Esther belongs in the old Testament, cause it doesn't mention God. And, you know, you could just read it as a nice little fairy tale. Like it, it, in mm-hmm. some sense, if we bracket God out of it completely, it reads kind of like an imaginative fairy tale. It's just, everything's mm-hmm. so, Oh, just that, that worked out really well. And it's like, <laughs> it only works out really well like that in made up stories. But if we mm-hmm. choose to read it as. This is God at work. But it does have a couple of very subtle historical markers that tie up some threads from way back in the Old Testament that is part of how we can tell it does belong in the canon and and how it's finishing storylines from earlier. So it's part of this divinely inspired story. And so it it mentions, I'll just, I'll mention the two things in chapter three. um, Is this where Haman's introduced? Just double checking. Yeah, right at the beginning of chapter three, Haman comes onto the scene. It says, King mm-hmm. King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamad- Hamadatha. There we go. Uh, <laughs> the Agagite. And so on the surface, it's just, oh, he's, you know, an Agagite, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> but then uh, astute readers will recognize, okay, well, an Agagite is a descendant of Agag. Mm-hmm. 
So then it makes back us, in First Samuel fifteen. So we think back to First Samuel fifteen, which what happens in First Samuel fifteen? We get Tell me. Saul. Saul. That's Saul right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Saul. Yes. Saul is supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. And doesn't. And doesn't. The <laughs> king of the Amalekites is King Agag, and so Saul preserves right. him. Samuel comes along and says, no, that you weren't supposed to do that. You were supposed to obey what you were told to do. Um, Samuel finishes the job for him, but obviously King Agag had, Agag had descendants. Mm-hmm. Um, so interestingly, earlier, Mordecai is called a son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, and Saul was the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. So Mordecai is this long-lost descendant of Saul. Crazy. Haman is this long-lost descendant of Agag who was an Amalekite, which actually, let's go back just a little bit further. So the Amalekites were the ones who opposed Israel coming out of Egypt in Exodus 17. And God had promised that because they had opposed Israel, he would blot their name out forever. But that hasn't happened. And then it finally happens in the book of Esther. So Esther connects back to first Samuel, connects back to Exodus, actually even connects all the way back to Genesis because the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. So it goes all the way back to the Jacob Esau rivalry. And so Esau's descendant, the Amalekites, Jacob's descendants, the Benjamites are at odds with one another. And it comes to a head all the way in the book of Esther. And so it's, you you know, on the surface, you're just like, Oh, why does this story belong here? It didn't have God in it anywhere. Like, and now you see like, Oh no, it's, it's part of the storyline, but you have to great example of, of the tiny details that mat that matter. And that, that, uh, every, every part of, of what we're reading is important. Mm. It's got a purpose. Yeah. So it's all part of God fulfilling his promises, keeping his word to us, keeping his covenant. And just Esther stands as a great reminder that, uh, what we might count as slow to fulfill his promises. Mm-hmm. It's all in God's timetable. He still mm-hmm. does what he promised in Exodus. Mm. And even when it doesn't seem like he's at work among us, he's behind the scenes working things together for our good, for his glory. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So Great hopefully to end on, hopefully as readers and or I keep saying readers, but as listeners <laughs> are, uh, going through this, it'll help you read Esther with new eyes. Maybe try to read it as if you've never read it before, but keeping mm-hmm. some of these details in mind. But it's been good chatting yeah. with you, Josh. I'm glad yeah. we were able to do this. Look forward to next time. You too, Nate. Yep. <laughs>